Good morning. We're in Luke 4, 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue in the Sabbath day, on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But the truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Seraphath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleans, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. I just love this church family. Don't you love worshiping Jesus together? Hey, before we give our attention to studying God's word, let's bow our heads and pray one more time. Before I pray for us, I'll invite you where you are to silently pray, asking that the Holy Spirit will move in this room and in the chapel right over there as they preach in Spanish and online as people join us. Would you would you join me in doing that? Let's pray. Our Lord, in the stillness of this moment, we acknowledge that you are God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. We thank you for your innumerable gifts of grace towards us. Thank you for the breath in our lungs and the food that you give us, the way that you take care of our bodies. Thank you for creating us. And especially thank you for sending Jesus and the Holy Spirit to save us and forgive our sins. We want to ask for your help this morning. Would you give us spiritual cleansing and renewal? Would you give us attentive minds, ears to hear, hearts to believe? I pray for uh, physical and spiritual power from your Holy Spirit now to help me preach your word in a way that honors you and helps all who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could... Join me in giving our attention to the very first words of our scripture reading from verse 14. The text begins by saying, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now last week, Pastor Chauncey preached to us about how the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And we learned that where Adam and Eve failed by sinning against God when they were tempted by the the devil, Jesus succeeded. And whereas Israel, when tested in the wilderness for 40 years, rebelled against God, Jesus, when tested in the wilderness for 40 days, walks faithfully with God. Jesus is thus revealing himself to be the one and only Savior who is capable 
of rescuing us from the power of sin and Satan and of renewing humanity. And now we read that the same spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness brings Jesus out of the wilderness. And as Jesus is beginning his public ministry in the region of Galilee, he goes in the power of the spirit. If you're a note taker, you might circle that word spirit from verse 14. Of course, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Everybody say the Holy Spirit. And if you've been with us for the last few months, you know that the gospel of Luke has really been emphasizing the presence and power and activity of the Holy Spirit surrounding the ministry of Jesus. Prior to this text that we just read, already the Holy Spirit had been mentioned 12 times in Luke's gospel. And now there's two more today. So three and a half chapters into the gospel, there's already been 14 mentions of the Holy Spirit. And today... What's being emphasized is the power of the Spirit. We learned in the last few weeks that the Spirit comes to bring God's peace to renew creation. And now in the active public ministry of Jesus, we see that work of the Spirit powerfully, effectively at work in the world. And we know that the power of the Spirit is being manifested in the ministry of Jesus in a way that people can see. They can perceive it because if you look in verse 15, we read that Jesus was being glorified by all, which means throughout the region of Galilee, everybody is seeing something new and different in the ministry of Jesus. They're glorifying him. They're praising him. They're saying this man has power and authority like we've never seen before. As we keep reading through chapter four, Luke's not going to make us guess what the power of the Holy Spirit looked like. He's going to tell us about it. And the the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and around and through the ministry of Jesus, the Son of God, is going to be manifest in powerful words and powerful deeds. The powerful deeds are going to look like miracles of healing. Jesus is going to heal sick people. He's going to Open the eyes of those who are physically blind. But the authority of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit are going to be demonstrated also and to an even greater degree through his words, his teaching ministry. Before we get out of chapter four, the crowds are going to marvel and say, who is this who speaks with such authority? The words and the deeds of Jesus are both at work. It is the deeds of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, that tend to attract the most attention. People hear about his healing ministry and they flock to see him. Who is this person who comes with power to heal the sick and to open the eyes of the blind and eventually to raise the dead and to command the wind and the waves and they obey him and to multiply loaves and fishes to feed the multitude? Who has the power to do these deeds? But... Luke starts telling us the story, not by talking about these miracles, but by rather telling us about Jesus going throughout all Galilee and then to the little town of Nazareth and going into their synagogues and opening scrolls and just teaching the Bible. And and I want to suggest to you this, whereas it is the miracles of Jesus that gather the most crowds and get the most attention It is the teaching ministry of Jesus that is the more powerful manifestation of the healing power of God. The miracles of Jesus heal people's bodies. But the words of Jesus heal people's souls. The miracles of Jesus at this point are a temporary healing. When Jesus comes back, there will be a new creation and there will be no more sickness or pain or death. But at this point, everybody who Jesus heals is going to get sick again and they're going to die. But the words of Jesus have power to bring an eternal liberation, an eternal healing to heal our deeper needs, not just our physical bodies, but to heal our souls of sin. Luke is emphasizing that point, And it made me think about this question. Think about this. I want to invite you to think about it with me. If we had two choices today, 
And both choices involved the power of the Holy Spirit moving among us at church, which means they're both good. Anybody want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit this morning? Okay, we do. Now, here's our two choices. One would be we come in here and God starts moving with miraculous power. There's a lot of sick people and we start praying for them in the name of the Jesus and they're miraculously healed. And while that's happening, demons start manifesting and we start casting out demons in the name of Jesus and people are delivered. And everybody here leaves encouraged, saying God was among them. Jesus is real. Does that sound exciting? And I've seen God do both of those things at different times in in ministry. But if we had a powerful day like that, people were healed in the name of Jesus. Demons were cast out in the name of Jesus. And it was so full of miraculous power that we never got around to teaching the Bible. Everybody just went home praising Jesus. That would be a good day. That's day number one. Here's scenario number two. We come here and nobody is miraculously healed. People come physically sick and they leave physically sick. But while we're here, we open up the Bible And the words of God are spoken and understood and believed in faith. Question, which one of those is a greater manifestation of God's power? A lot of us might tend to feel more excited about the first one. But Luke is trying to show us the second one is the greater manifestation of God's power. It's the teaching ministry of Jesus which has power to heal our souls. So one of the questions that this section of Luke's gospel is teaching us to wrestle with is is this. How is the redeeming power of the Holy Spirit at work in the world today? Or we could put it like this. How can we recognize and open ourselves to the powerful activity of God's spirit in our lives, our families, our community and our world? Now, to help us begin thinking about the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit at work in the world, Luke takes us to a little synagogue in a little town of Nazareth. He tells us about what happens there. Look with me at verse 16. It says this, And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This is a little town where Jesus grew up as a little boy. It's in the region of Galilee. And as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now, let me say something about Nazareth and something about the synagogue to help us set the scene so that we can picture and imagine what's happening here. The cultural and spiritual and religious center of life for God's people, the Jews, was in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, in the region of Judea. And Galilee was to the north of that, somewhat removed from Jerusalem, somewhat removed from the temple and the official, famous, recognized, authorized teachers of the Jewish community. And for that reason and its proximity to Gentile pagan peoples, anybody who came from Nazareth was already viewed with a level of suspicion. Excuse me, anybody who came from Galilee, that region. My kids would say, they're sus. People from Galilee are already kind of from the margin. They're living on the border between who's acceptable and who's not acceptable. But within that region of Galilee, there is a town with a particularly bad reputation. And that town is Nazareth. Jesus grew up. In a town with a bad reputation. And we know this for a number of reasons. One of them is a little story that some of you will remember from the first chapter of John's gospel. Philip goes and tells his friend Nathaniel, I think I've found the Messiah. I've found the Savior. You need to come meet him. His name is Jesus and he's from the town of Nazareth. And some of you remember how Nathaniel responded. Yelled out. What did he say? That's right. He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? That that's like a saying, like, can anything good come out of the south side? Question, can it? Yes, it can. God loves to do good things in Nazareth. God loves to do good things in the south side. So Jesus is in a region which is suspicious. He's in a town with a bad reputation. 
But he goes to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was basically like a church building. And the rules were, in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish males, 12 years of age or older, in your community. So some synagogues were quite large. Some of them would be very small, smaller than what we're doing today. But the synagogue would become central for the life of that community. It would be a school that people would go through, go to during the week to get educated. It would be a cultural center. And um, once a week on the Sabbath day, people would gather there to worship and be instructed in the scriptures. And by the way, you'll notice it says Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath to worship with God's people, as was his custom. In other words, he did it every week, which means by showing up here today, you're already starting to imitate Jesus. Good job, church family. But he goes there, and to help us visualize this, I want to tell you a little bit about what those synagogue services were like. We know quite a bit historically about what they would do. When, when the people gathered, they would start with a call to worship, much like we started with a call to worship from the scriptures today. But they would always read the same call to worship. It was from Deuteronomy chapter 6 portion of scripture called the Shema, which starts "Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then after they said that call to worship from the Shema together, they would take some time to pray liturgical prayers, pre-written prayers. They might chant them or they might sing them much like we sung songs that were prayers to God today. And then made a shared prayer when we took the Lord's Supper. And then it would be time for the scripture readings. And they would have two different readings. Somebody would stand up and read a scroll from the Torah, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then there would be a second reading from the prophets. And after that second reading from the prophets, the person who read it would spend some time teaching and explaining the meaning of the scriptures that were just read. So what happens... Today is this. Jesus is in his hometown in in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue. They chant the Shema together. They chant some prayers. Somebody reads something from Exodus or Leviticus or something like that. And then the synagogue attendant gives a scroll to Jesus, the scroll of Isaiah. And what happens next is, on one hand, very ordinary and normal, but on the other hand, Very extraordinary and dramatic. Let's read it again. Beginning of verse 17. It says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. There would be a dramatic pause here because it's a scroll. So you got to like do this until you find the place. And there's no chapter numbers and there's no verse numbers. So you just got to keep reading through skimming until you find the place. He goes to chapter 61, although part of this quotation, most of it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, but some of it actually comes from Isaiah 58, verse 6. So maybe Jesus read both of those, or maybe he read just from chapter 61, and then he quotes a little bit from chapter 58. But here's, here's what is read. Starting in verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. That's going to take a second. He's doing this for a little while. And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Can you feel the dramatic tension of this moment? He grew up in this town. They know him, but now they've been hearing he's done miracles. He's been doing amazing things. And now he's come back home and he sits down and it's quiet. And Luke doesn't give us the whole sermon of Jesus, but he gives us the opening line. And what an amazing opening line it is. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. And you're hearing. In other words, he's saying, Isaiah was talking about me. I can't start a sermon with that line. If I do, it's blasphemy, right? You should not put up with me if I try that. 
But Jesus is saying, the time Isaiah was talking about is now. The person Isaiah was talking about is me. Let's ponder for a moment these words that Jesus speaks. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jews at the time were struggling to understand what was Isaiah talking about, not only in his famous four servant songs, but also in these famous four songs that come at the very end of Isaiah, which sing about a mysterious individual who is empowered by the spirit. He's anointed by the spirit. So literally he's Messiah. He's the anointed one. But they weren't sure if he was the same person, the king we call Messiah, because he's described more like a prophet. And so they were arguing about is it the same person, is it a different person? They weren't quite sure. But what was clear is that these four songs of the spirit anointed prophet were singing about an individual who were going to who was going to come from God. And when he came from God, it was going to be a sign that God's judgment was here to overthrow the powers of evil. And God's grace was here to rescue his people and renew creation and bring light to all nations. They didn't know quite what to make of it, but Jesus is saying, it's me. And before he's done in the Gospel of Luke, he's going to say, I'm the suffering servant Isaiah talked about. I'm the anointed one Isaiah talked about. I'm the king from the line of David. It's all about me. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. In fact, one of the main themes of Luke's Gospel is that Jesus and the scriptures go together. He's the fulfillment of the whole Bible. So you can't understand the Bible apart from Jesus, but you also can't understand Jesus apart from the whole Bible. Let me show you just a couple other places where this theme shows up in Luke's gospel so that we can begin to understand the full significance of what's being said in today's text. Luke 421. If you've got your Bible, flip to the last chapter of this book. Luke chapter 24. I'm just going to read you two verses which come from. Two dramatic stories after Jesus has died on the cross for our sins and risen from the grave. So he died for us. He rose from the grave. He appears to his disciples. The first one is Luke 24, verse 27. Jesus appears and he's talking to two disciples that are walking on the road to Emmaus. And they don't recognize him at first. But here's what's, what they're talking about. Verse 27 says, and beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. If you got your Bible, you might want to underline those words. All the scriptures. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, the resurrected Lord Jesus is saying, the whole Bible is about me. And he takes a few hours to break it down with him. Don't you wish you could walk on that road with the resurrected Jesus and hear that. But it's not the only time. Skip your eyes down if you're in Luke chapter 24 to verse 44. This time, it's, it's another appearance where Jesus is appearing to the 11. And he shows up, the resurrected Lord Jesus. And when he shows up, he says this. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's saying the whole Bible, what we call the Old Testament, all the scriptures is about him. So everybody say it's all about Jesus. To read the Bible rightly, we need to recognize it's all pointing towards Jesus and to his salvation and helping us become people that believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and that trust and obey and follow the person of Jesus Christ. Likewise, if, if we want to know the real Jesus, we've got to read the whole scriptures. If you've got a Jesus who's out of step with the Bible, you've got an imaginary Jesus. If you want to know the real historic Jesus who walked around the dusty streets of Galilee, who healed sick people, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and says, I'm returning in glory Jesus says, you got to read the whole Bible. It's all about me. It all points towards me. Now, we can make a connection between this idea 
And the idea we were ruminating on from verse 14, this is a story about the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can begin to observe that the power of the Holy Spirit in the world is generally manifest as a Jesus-centered power that is rooted in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit has come to renew all of creation. And the Holy Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. Amen. He can do anything all the time. But the work of the Holy Spirit is centered on the person of Jesus and rooted in the Scriptures. Which means if we want to be people whose lives are characterized by a deep experience of the renewing, redeeming, peace-giving power of the Spirit, we need to be people who learn how to live lives that are centered on Jesus. And rooted in the scriptures. But now let's give our attention to the text that Jesus actually reads. And what he says it's saying about him and his ministry. Look with me again at verses 18 and 19. As Jesus reads from Luke 61 verses 1 through 2. Combined with, excuse me, Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. Combined with Isaiah 58, 6. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Here's the Spirit again. You might want to circle that. Everybody say, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to do what? Luke puts this story at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, his narrative of the public ministry of Jesus, not because this is actually the first thing Jesus did. It's clear from comparing with the other Gospels and even a close reading of this chapter, Jesus did a lot of stuff before he preached this sermon. But Luke puts it here because this sermon of Jesus is telling us in Jesus' own words what his mission is all about. If you want to know what is the mission of Jesus on earth, pay attention to these verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let's start breaking down what Isaiah is saying here. First, I want you to pay attention to those two little words. Good news. Everybody say good news. Sometimes we say gospel. The word gospel just means these words good news. To to talk about good news is to announce, to herald, that somebody has won a victory on your behalf. And in the scriptures, in general, when this term is being used, it's being used to say, God has acted to do something for us which we could never do for ourselves and which we didn't deserve. But what God has done for us makes all the difference in the world. It means freedom. It means forgiveness. It means joy. This word good news is is rooted in the practice of having a herald, which is a person who would run and proclaim in the town square an announcement. Good news This is a long time before newspapers, a long time before the Internet. Now, if you want to imagine what it would be like. To experience the kind of good news proclamation heralded that Isaiah is talking about. You've got to imagine being people who are vulnerable, who are being threatened by war and who who can't rescue yourself. And then you hear the announcement of a victory that means you're safe. Now, in America, it's been a long time since any of our wars were fought on our own soil. But if if you've been watching the news, you know, there's wars going on. Throughout the world. So if you want to imagine something like what is evoked by this statement of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because I've come to preach good news to herald a victory. You can imagine yourself being a Ukrainian. I hope you're praying for the Ukrainians and the Russians involved in this conflict. But imagine how vulnerable it must feel if you live in a town and you know the Russians are advancing on you and you're scared of what's going to happen and communications down where you are. So you're not getting cell phone reception. You're not getting the Internet. You don't know what's going to happen. You're kind of hiding in your house waiting to see. And then one day, all of a sudden, you hear the sound of a motorcycle and somebody comes out and they're yelling in a megaphone. Good news. Our forces won a great victory. The Russians have retreated. You're safe. Can you imagine what everybody would do right after that? They're coming out of their houses and now they're dancing in the streets, right? Somebody has done something for us which we could not do for ourselves, 
but which makes all the difference in the world. That's the vocabulary being evoked here. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, salvation to the world or to the poor. And we'll come back to that word poor in a minute. But first, skip down to verse 19. Verse 19 says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this just means God is acting now to save the world. The year of the Lord's favor means God is acting now to save the world. But this phrase is an allusion back to Leviticus 25 and the practice of the Jubilee. If you don't know about the Jubilee, that's a good reason not to skip Leviticus in your Bible reading plan, because the Jubilee is awesome. Everybody say Jubilee. Jubilee was an ancient Jewish practice, although it was probably almost never actually practiced. Uh, but God told the people to do it. And and here's what it was. Every 50 years, everybody who had any debt, it was automatically forgiven. Doesn't that sound amazing, family? And every 50 years, anybody who was a slave, there was a lot of ways to become a slave in this ancient Near Eastern society. You could go into debt. You could be captured in a battle. All, all, you could be born into slavery. But every 50 years, everybody who's a slave immediately is granted their freedom. Every 50 years, if you lost your family's land by making bad decisions or by breaking your leg so you couldn't take care of it, your grandpa's land would come back to you every 50 years. Doesn't the year of Jubilee sound great? And Jesus is saying, I'm coming in the power of the Holy Spirit to announce that I'm winning a victory that you could not win for yourself, which means all your debts are canceled. Every slave is free and you are going to dwell in the land I promised to your fathers. That's what he's saying. This is a great gospel word. But he says something also about his audience. He's come to proclaim good news to the poor. Liberty to captives. Recovering of sight to the blind. Liberty to those who are oppressed. Actually, this word oppressed is a word that literally means something like bruised. It refers to people that they've just been trampled on in life to such a degree that they're bruised, they're traumatized, they're hurting, they're beaten up. (coughs) Now, one of the things that people argue about with relation to this passage is when Jesus talks about the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, when he talks about liberation, Is he using these words in a spiritual, metaphorical way? Or is he using them in a literal, physical way? In other words, is he talking to people who are spiritually blind? Is he talking to people who are spiritual captives, spiritual prisoners? Or does he mean like actually blind people? Actually people that are captives that are in prison. And the correct answer to that question is yes. So everybody say both. And you don't have to take my word for it. Go study Isaiah 58. Go study Isaiah 61. Read the rest of Luke's gospel. (coughs) It's clear from the context both of Luke and of Isaiah that Jesus is talking about both. So let's talk about how we could read it at each of those levels. If it's spiritual, okay, what does it mean to proclaim good news to those who are spiritually poor? We just got to ask the question, what have you earned through your lifetime of moral and spiritual choices? We're going to have a confession moment. Has anybody here sinned in thought, word, or deed? Okay, I see that hand. We've got a few admitted sinners in the room. Y'all repeat, y'all repeat this scripture for me. The wages of sin is... The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. If you sin, what you earn is death, physical and spiritual. Which means... If God gives us what we deserve, we're all in big trouble. We've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Y'all know the difference between a wage and a gift, right? A wage you earn, a gift is free. I, I, when I try to explain that verse to kids in the neighborhood, one of the things I'll often say is, when you wake up on Christmas morning, if, if mama's got a present for you under the tree that's all wrapped up, and you go out there, does she say, all right, first you've got to do your chores, you've got to wash the dishes, you've got to mow the lawn, you've got to do all this stuff. Um, and then you can open your gift. And usually they say no. But one time a kid said yes. 
And I told her, next time that happens, you need to tell your mama. That's called a Christmas wage, okay? <clears throat> because a, a wage is something you earn, and a gift is supposed to be free. Now, if we get what we earn for our lifetime of moral and spiritual choices, we're spiritually bankrupt. What we've earned is death. And the more clearly we see that and are willing to admit it, the better, which is why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. But what he's saying right here is, I have come with the anointing power of the Holy Spirit to tell you, you're spiritually bankrupt. But if you'll trust in me, all the riches of heaven are yours. That's the gospel. And then he goes on and talks about liberty to the captives. Well, what does it mean to be a captive spiritually? Everybody ever felt like you're stuck in a sin pattern that you can't break? The Bible says we were all born slaves to sin, captives to sin. And if you're captive to sin, you're also a captive not only to death, but the fear of death and to Satan. So the devil can just manipulate you and do whatever he wants to with you. But what Jesus is saying is I came for people who are slaves and prisoners, captives to sin, Satan and death. I came to die on the cross for your sins and rise again so that anybody who believes in me is free. Free at last and free forever. What does it mean to be spiritually blind? This shouldn't be that hard. You ever feel like you're stumbling in the darkness? Trying to say, where are you, God? Who are you, God? I don't even know who you are. Anybody been there? Jesus comes, the light shining in the darkness says, anybody who believes in me, I will open their eyes. I will pour my spirit into their heart and I'll say, look at me and I will show you the father. I'll teach you who God is. Apart from Jesus, we don't know who God is. We don't know who we are. We don't know what the purpose of our life is. But Jesus came to open the eyes. And anybody know what it's like just to be bruised and beat up by life and the devil is just punching you left and right and you come into church, but your spiritual lips are bleeding. You got a spiritual black eye. Anybody been there? Jesus is saying, I came to die on the cross for your sins and rise again so that you can be healed. You can be free. That's what it looks like to read this at the spiritual level. But there's this other level, which is the physical. And listen, when, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 58, he's quoting a passage of scripture, which is about true spirituality or true fasting, contrasting that with fake spirituality. He says the spirituality that God wants is this in verse six and seven. He says, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh? He's saying, if you want to please God, love people that are hurting all around you. And in, in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to read the same thing. In Luke chapter 6, he's going to say, give to everyone who begs from you. We're going to read in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you see people are hurting, then um, go take care of them. And, and Jesus, if we put together the pieces here, here's what we're saying. Let's do a little theology pop quiz. Does God love rich people? Does God love poor people? Does God love Republicans? Does God love Democrats? Does God love white people, Latino people, black people, Chinese people? Okay, God loves everybody. We got it, right? Everybody say, God loves everybody. That is true. But there's another thing that's true biblically, which is that God, he loves everybody. And precisely because he loves everybody, his heart is broken for those who are downtrodden and poor and vulnerable. And throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, there's a consistent uh, message that God is at work everywhere in the world, but he's especially at work among those who are most downtrodden and bruised, the widow, the fatherless, the poor, the vulnerable. So the key word there is that especially. Everybody say especially. Now, let me let me tell you, in my life, I've experienced God's goodness in my life a lot of times, but there's also been times where I was literally poor. I was broke, didn't know how I was going to pay the rent to take care of my family. And do you know what I found? I found that God is a very present help in times of trouble. Anybody else experienced that? But here's the truth. I, I have I know what it's like to experience some of these words, not only in the spiritual sense, but also in the literal and physical sense. But I've also experienced tremendous privileges in my life. 
And there's people all around me who have experienced much greater suffering and poverty. They've been much more bruised by life than I have. And what I found is that whenever I follow Jesus out to come into contact with those neighbors, I find that the spirit of God is at work. Anybody else experience that? I felt that this past Friday because uh, several weeks ago, Dr. Bruce Perkins from Oklahoma Baptist University invited me to come out to Lexington Prison to preach at their chapel service. And Friday, I was out there preaching uh, to their chapel service. And this is a chapel service specifically for students who are a part of a program that is uh, uh, by Oklahoma Baptist University that they're getting a bachelor's of divinity degree, a full degree for free while in prison. Isn't that amazing? And uh, I got to hang out for quite a while, not, not only preached, but hung out with the inmates before and after and went into their cells and talked. And they told me their stories. Guys, 21 of those guys have life sentences. They're getting that degree. The age range of guys in the program was like 17 to 67. Roscoe's the oldest, 67. He, he led the first part of the service. and It was powerful. And, and what I sensed when I was out there with them was that God is at work all over the place, but he's especially at work right there with those prisoners, wherever there's downtrodden, whenever there's hurting people. By the way, he invited me weeks ago to go, but I just happened to be writing a sermon on this text. So I preached this text out there and those guys were getting fired up because many of them were not only having a sense. um, God loves prisoners, but they're having a sense. God is especially he's at work everywhere in the world, but he's especially at work in hard places like the Correctional Center in Lexington, which means I'm here not only loved by God, but I'm here on assignment. God wants to work through me. Now, question, friends, anybody find yourself in some hard places in life? Okay, here's the thing. If you're there, it's because God has put you there on assignment. And the more you follow Jesus, the more you'll find that Jesus has a tendency not only to heal us in our inner soul and to forgive us, And to give us hope and freedom and a new life. But to say, follow me and I'm going to take you into places where people are bruised. I'm going to take you into places where people are captive. I'm going to take you to places where there's dark generational cycles and demonic strangleholds that you are powerless to break. But I am not powerless to break them. And if you'll follow me into that place, you'll find I was already with you. But now I'm especially with you. And there's going to be more freedom and joy. And as a matter of fact, friends, we're going to have forever in heaven to enjoy all the bliss of God's new creation. Since we've only got a few years right now, I figure I'd rather be in the hard places where God is especially at work. Wouldn't you? I told the guys, sometimes I start coveting my neighbor's pastoral assignment because some of my Pastor friends are being used by the Lord in powerful ways in much more cushy jobs. But then I remember, you know what? My my job may be a little harder, but it's also more blessed. And then I said to them, but hey, you're I'm on the south side. That may be a little harder than some other appointments. But your job is a lot harder than me. And one of the guys in that prison from the south side said, I don't know, man. So it's open for debate. They said that we might have as hard of assignment. But at any rate, is God with us, church family? He's with us, church family. And when it's over our heads, that's a great place to be because we know that now we've got to depend on the power of Jesus. Now, I don't have time to go into everything in the last part of this story. But in verses 20 through 30, we're given a sobering reminder that the freedom and the grace and the forgiveness and the healing That Jesus wants to give. It's free. It's a gift, not a wage. All you got to do is trust in Jesus. But you do have to trust in Jesus. We're responsible for our response to the presence of Jesus. And in verses 20 through 30, I'm not going to read it all right now. You can go study it this week. But we learned a few things. First, the people get excited. Oh, his words are gracious. But then they start to say, isn't this Joseph's son? It's like we remember you running around playing hopscotch or whatever little Jewish boys did in Nazareth. I don't know what they did. We remember you. Who do you really think you are? Jesus understands that they've got a negative bias against the hometown prophet. But Jesus also understands 
there's a deeper spiritual issue. The issue is they want the lesser signs of God's power, namely miracles. They don't want the greater manifestation of God's power, the word of truth. Put it this way. They want the gifts Jesus gives more than they want Jesus. Put it this way. They want the benefits of God's kingdom more than they want the king. So he says, look, you're going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. The works you've done in Capernaum, why don't you do them here in your hometown? In other words, we've heard all sorts of stories about you healing people throughout Galilee. Now, heal some people here. Prove it. Prove that you are who you say you are. If the spirit of the Lord is upon you, then show us. But Jesus knows that they don't have hearts of faith. They have hard, unbelieving hearts. And when he responds, he, he tells them a story about Elijah from First Kings. And he tells them a story about Elisha from Second Kings. And the point, both of these stories are, are about times when God's people, Israel, were going through some very dark days. And God sent a prophet to proclaim God's grace and to call the people home. But many of God's own people have... Hard, stubborn hearts. So even though God is offering them freedom and forgiveness and salvation, they're rejecting it and missing out. Whereas the pagan Gentiles who are supposed to be far from God are opening their hearts and experiencing God's grace. And he's saying to them, I love you. Let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I love you. I want to set you free. But you better be careful because if your hearts are stubborn and hard, you will miss my freedom. And the pagan Gentiles that you hate are going to experience the salvation that you've missed. Now, when they hear that, the text says they're filled with wrath. They get so angry, they're about to kill Jesus. Now, that is... A very extreme reaction to the news of God's universal grace. They're about to throw him off the edge of the cliff and throw rocks at him until he's dead. That's their plan. Why? Because Jesus has just said to them, you want a savior who will come to you on your terms and give you what you want and kill your enemies. But I'm coming to bring forgiveness and life to everybody. I want to restore your enemies. And if you want to share in the salvation that I'm going to give to your enemies, you have to humble yourself and accept it on my terms. And they don't want to do that. Verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill. They're they're hanging on to their ethnocentrism and to their ideas about what God's kingdom should be like. Even if they have to kill the Messiah, whom they know he grew up in their town. They bring him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Look at verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. Doesn't explain how that happened, but nobody can take Jesus's life until he lays it down. His time had not yet come. That little story causes us to end today with this question. How will we respond to Jesus? How will we respond to Jesus? The freedom he wants to give is a gift. It's not a wage. But it's a gift that needs to be unwrapped by faith, which means receiving Jesus on his terms instead of demanding Jesus fits into our paradigm. We can reject Jesus like the crowd or we can accept him, which means saying, Jesus, I'm the sinner. I'm the captive. I'm the blind. That's about me. You're the king. You're the savior. You're the son of God. You're the one who died and rose again. Forgive me. Cleanse me. And my life is yours. That's what faith looks like. And that's how the Christian life begins. But that's also every step of every day of the Christian life. Jesus, you're the king. I surrender. Jesus set me free from the inside out. If we accept that, what we're being invited into is a life that can be described in the same words that verse 14 used. The power of the spirit is with them. Church, do you want to be a people that the power of the spirit is with us? Here's what today's story has taught us. We need to be a people that are all about Jesus. We've surrendered to Jesus. We need to be a people that 
have submitted our lives to the authority of God's holy word, the whole Bible. We need to be a people who are a gospel preaching people. Did he say, I came to bring great advice to the poor? Is that what he said, church? Everybody say good news. Listen, go read Galatians. A bunch of rules about how to live does not bring you the freedom of the Holy Spirit. What brings you the holy, the freedom of the Holy Spirit is the good news that God has done something in Jesus, which we could never do for ourselves. And when we trust in him and walk in faith in that gospel, there's freedom. There's freedom. And part of what that freedom looks like is we find the Holy Spirit of God pulling us into the hard places where people are hurting, where we're over our heads and we don't have the resources to make the difference we want to make so that we have to depend on the resources of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But if we'll trust him and follow him on that journey, what we'll experience is that the same spirit who is at work in the life of Jesus is at work in the body of Christ today. He's still revealing Jesus, God, the son to the world. He's still healing the sick. He's still bringing peace and renewal into God's creation. He's still sending out God's word to people that need it. Out of my apartment complexes, I went to this week, just opening up the Bible with some kids in that place and reading some teenage kids, reading the Psalms and talking about what God is teaching them and apply it to our life. I saw the Holy Spirit's at work. He's at work. He's still calling people to God the Father through Jesus Christ. He's still setting captives free and breaking yokes of oppression. The question is just, will we join Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the work that he is doing? You want to join him, church family? Let's stand in honor of the Lord to sing a song of praise. And I'm going to say a prayer for us before we finish. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We say, Jesus, it's all about you. We confess our need for you. And we celebrate the fact that though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So all praise goes to you forever. Lord, I want to pray even now as we sing, Lord, if there's anybody in this room that has not taken that first step of surrendering their hearts and lives to Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation, Lord. That even now they would say, I'm turning from sin. I'm trusting in Jesus. And for every Christian in the room who has already trusted you, I pray that we would turn again to Jesus. And as we renounce all dependency upon ourselves and confess our utter need for you, I pray that once again you would be at work to bring us freedom. Renewal. Healing and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray.